I want to begin our time together this morning with a little story for you. A little story drawn out of, out of England. Over there in England, there was a tramp one day. He was kind of moving around this picturesque English village. He was hungry, looking for something to eat. Almost to the point of fainting, he was so hungry. He stopped by a particular pub, and there, out the wooden sign hanging out over the door, a classic English pub, said, The Inn of St. George and the Dragon. So he went up to the door, and he banged on the door. He said, Please, ma'am, can you spare me something to eat? The lady who answered the door, she, she said, A bite to eat? You bum! You filthy-smelling beggar! She slammed the door. Almost cost him his fingers. Halfway down the lane, the tramp stopped, turned back around again and gazed at that sign and St. George and the Dragon. He thought for a moment and and he went back and he knocked on the door again. Now what do you want? The woman said angrily. Well, ma'am, if St. George is in, may I speak with him this time? (laughs) Some of you about 1.30 in the middle of lunch, that will, you'll figure that out. Open your Bibles up to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. I know all service long there will be little sporadic laughters <laughs> as it dawns on people. Oh, I got it. See, she was... No, that's okay. <laughs> Open your Bibles up to Romans 12. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available that you can borrow. They're in the seat back in front of you, or if you're on an aisle seat, they're underneath your seat. If you'll take one of those Bibles out and open it up to page 1136, you'll arrive at the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. I'm going to read for you the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 1 and all the way through verse 13, and use this to set the context for our time together in the Word this morning. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, 
Let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Stop right there. When we, by the grace of God, come to the place where we understand our rebellion against our Creator, where we become convicted of our sin and His righteous judgment, at that moment in time, the Spirit of God who is at work in all of those things and brings that conviction also opens our eyes to see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. We come to understand that it is God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alone our only hope of redemption. That it is His sacrificial death on that cross so long ago that carried away the penalty for our sin. Our guilt was placed upon Him and punished there. And God then raised Him from the dead three days later, signifying to all who would look on to see that He had accepted that sacrifice in the place of His people. When we, by faith, embrace this reality of the fact that we are sinners without hope except for what God has done in Jesus Christ, at the moment we receive that truth by faith, we are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. And we are transformed. We go from being captives of the kingdom of darkness to citizens and residents of the kingdom of light. We go from being God's enemies to God's favored sons. And there is a massive transformation that occurs inside us through the power of the living God. He puts within our heart a desire and an ability to love and to serve Him for the rest of our existence. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are amazing transformations that occur in every single one of us. And we all have our story, do we not? How God has worked in us, how He has transformed us, how we are not the same people we once were. The external evidence of the amazing transformation that occurs in us is that we now desire to love other people sacrificially. 
No longer are we oriented towards what can I get out of life? How can, how can I be happy? What can I do to make it work for me? And now the transformation has occurred that says that I love Christ, I love the people of God, and I desire to serve them and to love them with my whole heart. Now, it's not perfect, I know. We struggle, we slip, we fall, and we get back up again. And we ask Christ to to forgive us and to help us to continue on that path of sacrificial love. That's what we have been talking about these last couple of months here in Romans 12. We have been talking about the amazing transformation that has occurred in our heart by the grace of God through the indwelling power of His Holy Spirit that is motivating us to a sacrificial love. And we have been looking at the various ingredients of that love. What does it look like? What does love, the love of God that has been shed abroad in our heart, what does it really look like? And we arrive this morning here in verse 13 to the topic of generosity. To the topic of generosity because the seventh ingredient that paul lists for us here in verse 13 in his recipe for love is generosity look again at the verse contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality he is speaking about a generous heart a heart that has been transformed a heart that loves is a heart that is generous generous this Love, this generous love, is for both those inside the body and it goes outside the body as well. But I want to look with you this morning. We will divide this into two pieces. Verse 13. And I want to look with you this morning at first the generous love that shows up in our wallet. If I can divide verse 13 in half very simply, I will say that a generous love shows up in our wallet and our home our wallet and our home. And this morning, I want to speak together with you about our wallets. I want to preach to your wallet this morning. Well, not actually. I want to preach to you that it might affect your wallet. That it might affect your wallet. And what I want to do this morning is examine the internal and external dynamics of giving. The internal and external dynamics of giving So that we will grow more generous. So that we will grow more generous as the people of God. Just to set the context here a little bit more for us. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 34, Jesus made an amazing statement. He said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That is that you may take your check register and you can skim down it and you can, you can get an idea of where your heart really is. Now that's practical preaching, isn't it? Well, let's look here at generosity, the generosity of the wallet. And let's look at it both internally and externally. And I want to begin internally. I have for you on the back of your bulletin an outline of where we're going this morning. Giving is a matter of the heart. So let's begin internally. 
Giving is a matter of the heart. It recognizes community. It recognizes community. Look again at verse 13 of Romans 12, where he says, contributing to the needs of the saints. That word contributing comes from a Greek verb, and I normally don't want to share a bunch of Greek verbs with you, but I will share this verb with you because you will be familiar with it, at least by its sound. Koinoneo is the Greek verb from which the noun form is koinonia. Koinonia, which is translated in the English as what? Fellowship. Fellowship. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, in a verbal form, fellowshipping the needs of the saints. Fellowshipping the needs of the saints. This word, koinonia, translated Fellowship for us, or the verbal form, koinoneo, means at its most basic level, sharing. It means sharing, or it means partnership. The English word fellowship is the idea of sharing. It has the idea of partnership. It does not have the idea of food. That's our problem. We've attached that to it. It is sharing. It is partnership is the idea of Fellowship. And it is highly significant that Paul chose this word to speak about financial giving, because that is what he's talking about here. Financial giving. It is a highly significant choice of words to express the concept of Christian giving. A word that means sharing, a word that means partnership. And The interesting thing for me is that it's not just here in verse 12 of Romans, or excuse me, verse verse 13 of Romans 12. This underlying Greek word is actually used in many, many, many places in the New Testament where the context is clearly financial giving. Let me share a few of those with you. A little later in this book, Romans chapter 15, verse 26. Don't turn there. I'll just read them to you. Paul says there, speaking about giving again, financial giving, he says from Macedonia and Achaia, those are the two provinces of Greece, have been pleased to make a contribution, translated their contribution, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. A contribution, a koinonia. They have been pleased to make a koinonia, a fellowship, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 13, Paul writes, because of the proof given by this ministry, and he's speaking about the collection the church at Corinth is gathering to send to the poor in Jerusalem. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God, those who receive it, for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your, here it is again, koinonia, your contribution to them and to all. 2 Corinthians 9, 13. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Verbal form there. Koinoneo. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. You have done well to share with me in my affliction. Compound of the same word, koinonia. 
Instruct them, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, instruct them, that is the rich, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, there it is again, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 6, do not neglect doing good and sharing, there it is, verb form, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So it is not just here in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. It is all over the New Testament. When you have a context of financial giving by Christians, the predominant choice of the Greek word to express that is the word we translate fellowship. Fellowship. Giving is fellowship. It is fellowship. When we were saved, we were placed into the body of Christ. Is that not true? That body of Christ has its, has its expression in local congregations. We have become members one of another. And as part of a local congregation, we now fellowship one with another by sharing of the material wealth that God has entrusted to us with those in the congregation who are in need. This is fellowship, sharing, contributing to one another. So giving is a matter of the heart because it recognizes community. Secondly, giving is a matter of the heart because it results from conversion. It results from conversion. Now, it's, that's such an obvious statement. I probably don't even need to say that, right? It results from the conversion that, that happens to us when we are transformed by the indwelling Spirit of God. Paul's injunction here in Romans 12 and verse 13, just to remind you, follows on the heels of 11 chapters of theology. Isn't that true? Chapters 1 through 11, in which we receive the most systematic, the most detailed, the most powerful presentation of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ that is to be found anywhere between the covers of your Bible. And a natural outworking of that Conversion, that transformation, is a generous heart. A generous heart. It is the indwelling presence of, the, of God Himself who transforms you and me from selfish and stingy people into generous and giving people. Beloved, we do not give to get. Let me say that. We do not give to get. We are not motivated by personal greed in this matter. We give out of the overflow of the grace of God in our hearts and the love that God has shed abroad in us now overflows out of our hearts to one another in the body of Christ. It is a spiritual work. Turn to the right. You may see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1159. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <coughs> excuse me. Verses 1 through 5. Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth. And he says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's northern Greece. That in a great 
ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. These churches in northern Greece were poverty-stricken churches. These people were poor. They were very poor. They were also persecuted and afflicted in their poverty by the hostility of their pagan neighbors. And yet when the opportunity came for them to give for the collection of the saints in Jerusalem who were in need, they gave, and Paul says, they didn't just give a little, they gave in an overwhelming way. How? Why? The answer for us is in verse 5 where it says they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Generous giving follows after we give ourselves unto God. That is, we yield up ourselves to, to the Lord. His Lordship becomes preeminent in our life and then giving becomes an easier thing to do. Under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Giving is a matter of the heart. It recognizes community. It results from conversion. And third, it responds to need. It responds to need. Let me take you all the way back to the Exodus. Second book in your Bible. There are Exodus 25, page 82. There are actually two what I would consider classic texts on the topic of giving with regard to the responding to need, the internal motivation of giving, one in the old and one in the new. Exodus 25, page 82, verses 1 through 9 is the classic Old Testament text. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, ram's skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just as you shall construct it. Say to the sons of Israel, Moses, that every single person upon whose heart God has placed a desire to give, to give. And this is what we need, Moses, 
And he lists out a bill of materials. How did the people respond? Chapter 36. Chapter 36, page 97. How did these Old Testament people respond? The end of verse 3, chapter 36. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. This is the only time in the history of the people of God where someone has said, that's enough. You have given too much. The only time. The only time. God was doing such an amazing thing among them that they responded to the need to construct this tabernacle whereby their God would live among them that they brought and they brought and they brought and they brought and they brought until Moses says, keep your money. Never has a TV preacher ever said that. Never. I don't know that a preacher has ever said that. You've never heard me say that. But Moses said it. Fascinating, huh? Fascinating. Go with me all the way over to the New Testament. To the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, page 1090. And I'm going to read to you another astounding account of the people of God giving in response to need. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 43. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 43. This is at Pentecost, the birth of the church. Verse 43, And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 32. Page 1092. A little while later. In the congregation of those who believed, chapter 4, verse 32, were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. First century communism? Is that what this is all about? No. What this is all about is that these early disciples were absolutely persuaded to the depth of their being that Messiah was to return and establish His kingdom. They were observing the miracles of the apostles, the signs and wonders that were being done. Kingdom miracles, healings all over the place. And the preaching was powerful. And it was a preaching that said, Christ is coming back again. You must repent and be ready to receive your king. And on the basis of the, of the breaking in of the power of the age to come through miracles and the powerful preaching of the apostles, these people were absolutely sure Jesus could come any time. And therefore, to sell your property or your land was no big deal. And the reason it was no big deal is because when Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, he is going to redistribute the land to all the proper tribes and families. You couldn't go wrong. You couldn't go wrong. This was the ultimate jubilee. Sell it. You're going to get it back anyway. Fascinating. Fascinating. God is, in the Old Testament, tabernacling among His people. And they had to be restrained from giving. Here in the birth of the church, the kingdom of Christ is so imminent in the minds of the people that they will give everything without fear. Without worry about retirement or what about my future? Church planting takes money. Let me say that again. Church planting takes money. It takes money. Someone once said the gospel like water is free. And that's true. But plumbing costs money. <laughs> that's equally true. The delivery mechanism costs money. If we are to plant churches, we will need to be able to financially invest. There's just no getting around it. Do we believe that Jesus Christ can come at any time? Do we really believe that? We had an extensive summer series on prophecy. Do you remember? It was supposed to be short, and like everything else, it grows. And it took us all the way into the fall. How many were here for the prophecy series? Good. When we came through that prophecy series, 
one of the driving points was that the return of Jesus Christ is what? Imminent. There is nothing that needs to happen first before he comes for his church. It has been the blessed hope of the people of God since the beginning at Pentecost that Christ can come and will come in their lifetime. It has been their hope. It has motivated them to action. Do we believe Christ could come at any time? Second question. Do we have a role to play in reaching the nations with the gospel? Do we have a role to play as a congregation here? Do we? What do you think? Do we? The church down in the deep south, the preacher was moving toward the end of his sermon. And with a growing crescendo, he said, This church, like the crippled man, has got to get up and walk. The congregation responded, that's right, Reverend, let him walk. And he added, this church, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, has got to run. Run, let it run, preacher, let it run. This church has got to mount up on wings like eagles and fly. Let it fly, preacher, let it fly. And he added, if this church is going to fly, it's going to take money. Let it walk, preacher, let it walk. How true that is, huh? How true it is. Giving is a matter of the heart. Giving is a habit to be learned. Giving is a habit to be learned. Generosity, like all virtues, must be carefully and regularly cultivated in order to grow let me repeat that for you generosity like all virtues must be carefully and regularly cultivated in order for it to grow a couple of years ago carol and i were in japan one afternoon we had the privilege of visiting a public park There in that park, up in one section of the park, was a bonsai garden. It was the most fascinating part of Japan, as far as I was concerned, to see. It was amazing to me. Trees, hundreds of years old, growing in the equivalent of a dinner plate. Perfectly formed. All the leaves, all the branches, the trunk. Incredible. By accident? No, by the careful cultivation. Careful cultivation. In fact, those that are involved in this type of gardening, it is a treasure that is passed on from father to son to grandson. Because some of these trees, it takes that long. Regular, careful cultivation brings about these beautiful bonsai plants, trees, really. 
That's what it takes for virtue. Virtue has to be cultivated. It doesn't happen by chance. It has to be cultivated. And so giving is a habit that has to be learned. It is a learned behavior. How? I'm glad you asked me how. Number one. Number one in learning the habit of giving is to preach the gospel to yourself. It begins there. Preach the gospel to yourself. Back to Romans chapter 12. And be reminded of verses 1 and 2. Where Paul says, Therefore, based on the gospel as outlined in chapters 1 through 11, you are to undertake certain activities called preaching the gospel to yourself. That is, you are to be remember, you are to remember something first. You are to remember the mercies of God, right? Verse 1. Beyond that, you are to relinquish something. That is, you are to relinquish yourself to God. Present your body a living and holy sacrifice. Relinquish yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Third, you are to resist something. That is, you are to resist worldly corruption. Do not be conformed to this world. Verse 2 and Finally, number four, you are to renew your mind through the word of God, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the process of preaching the gospel to yourself. And this is what is required in order to bring about a learned gospel behavior. We are not talking about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We are talking about a gospel motivated change of life. By the way, verse 13, just an observation for you, chapter 12. It occurs right in the middle of the context here. A context completely devoted over to Christian love. It is therefore a universal injunction for all believers. Verse 8 speaks about those who give. That is, those who have a spiritual gift of giving. And it exhorts them to give with liberality. There are those that the Spirit of God has given a special ability to give. But the general injunction to be generous goes to every single Christian and it occurs here in the middle of this context. So this is for everybody. We're all to be generous. In our old nature, we are takers. In our new nature, we are to be givers. The old nature, we are takers. In the new nature, we are to be givers. And financial giving, generous financial giving is the evidence or an evidence, I should say, not the only evidence, but it is an evidence of the inner work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Jesus said, Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Only a spiritual person can make a statement like that. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So preach the gospel to yourself. Step number one in learning a habit of giving. Step number two, practice regular giving. Practice regular giving. Now listen carefully here. You cannot be generous in theory. You must be generous in practice. You cannot be generous in theory. You must be generous in practice. In other words... 
Do not fall prey to the false thinking that you will be a generous giver once certain circumstances in your life are resolved. I will give generously once I graduate from college. That is being generous in theory, not practice. I will be generous once I graduate from college because, you see, I'm in college and I need every penny I have for myself. It is false thinking to say, I will be generous once I find a regular job. But you see, I'm between work. I'm, I'm, I'm underemployed. So I cannot possibly be generous. I must keep everything for myself. It is false thinking to say that I will be generous once I get a raise. Once I get a raise, then I will be generous. This is generosity in theory, not practice. And is exceedingly dangerous. Exceedingly dangerous. Or how about this one? I will be generous when we finish raising our children. When my children are all raised, they've all gone to college, they're all married, they're all established, they're all in their own homes, they're all driving cars, they all have their own grandchildren, or my grandchildren, and on and on and on, and then I will be generous to the undertaker. To the undertaker. Generosity is not about theory, it is about practice. It begins right here, right now, between you and God. So let me suggest two things to you to help you in the practice of regular giving. First, give from the first fruits of what God entrusts to you. Give from the first fruits of what you have been financially provided. Do not wait until all your bills are paid and then give from whatever is left over because if that is your practice, you will find very little is ever left over. You must give first to the Lord. You must give first. Now, there is a caution that goes with this. The caution is, this will require you to live on a budget. It will require you to manage your finances. You will have to cut back on wasteful spending. You cannot continue to lavish yourself and still give to the Lord or you will be making up the difference with credit cards and it will not take long until you're sunk. So it requires learning how to live within a budget contentedly with what God has given you. There's no way around this, beloved. You start in the Old Testament, you go all the way to the New. Giving is of the first fruits. It comes first. There's really no avoiding it. The church at Corinth was a lot like the church in America. Self-absorbed, celebrity-driven, gifted and wealthy, apathetic and weak. And the Apostle Paul writes some very helpful instructions to this church with regard to the topic of giving. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, just listen, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save 
as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Set aside on the first day of the week, as God may prosper you. This leads me to my second tip to learn a habit of regular giving. The first is to give from the first fruits. That's tip number one. Tip number two is to give regularly. It's to give regularly. Now, I say this, not the Lord. This is my opinion. I will give you an opinion. My opinion is that giving every week has spiritual benefit. Some number of years ago, Carol and I decided to implement Paul's statement here in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, and to begin to give every week when the offering plate was passed. Formerly, we gave whenever we were paid. I had a job decades ago where I was paid once a month. We gave once a month. I've been paid twice a month. I've been paid every two weeks. I've been paid once a week. I've been paid, you know, like you, probably every which way but loose. And we always used to give whenever I got paid. But some years ago, we decided that we would give every week. We would give every week. And so I can report that there has been spiritual benefit in my life for doing this. And so I will just commend it to you. You do with it whatever you want. This is not, says the Lord. This is, this is my example. You do whatever you want with it. We give every week. And what that, the advantage, the spiritual benefit that we have gained from this is that it has taken away the idea that our giving is a bill that needs to be paid. And it has helped us to see it as an offering to the Lord that is offered every week along with prayer and singing and Bible reading and preaching. It is all part of our worship of the Lord that we do corporately every week. And so that's what we do. We give every week. And we do it for that purpose. Giving is a habit to be learned. It begins by preaching the gospel to yourself. Secondly, it requires the practice of regular giving. Third, third in the developing of this habit, and this is the one that will really test us, plan to give more. Plan to give more. That is... Each and every year, sit down before the Lord and figure out how can we give more this year than last year as a percentage of our income. As a percentage of our income. Not because I got a raise, but how can we give more of a percentage of our income to the Lord each year? How could that be? It requires lifestyle constraint, doesn't it? Years and years and years ago, I had a friend who had graduated with a master's degree, an MBA from a very prestigious school in the Midwest, and he had received a very lucrative engineering job, kind of a management-slash-engineering job, with a, a petrochemical company. And they were paying him a very big salary. And so... He and his wife sat down and they figured out what they needed to live on and they committed before the Lord that they would give away everything above that amount. They would adjust that amount for inflation year over year, but everything above the inflation-adjusted amount that they had determined that they would live on, they were to give away. 
Now, I have lost track of him. This goes back 20-plus years. But I did meet him about 10 years out after we had talked about that, and I asked him how it was going, and he said they were still doing it. They were still doing it. They were still giving away everything above this amount of money they needed to live on. That's incredible. That is incredible to set those kind of sights before God. I'm not making, this is not law. This is just what one person did. What one person did. Can you imagine how much ministry could be accomplished around here if we were not constrained by finances? Have you ever thought about that? If we were not financially constrained, how much additional ministry could be done from this body here? We have seven families or and or individuals that are in the pipeline for international, full-time international ministry, from church planting to Bible translation. Seven, seven individuals and families. Not all ready to leave tomorrow, but they are, they are in the pipeline. They are seriously considering and praying and going before the Lord to see, God, will you have me go overseas? And the vast majority of them are thinking about the most difficult missionary field of the world, the 1040 window. That's the place where they kill you. There are also a number of young men in this congregation who are seriously wrestling with God about a call to vocational ministry that would include seminary to prepare them for church planting or pastoral ministries. Will we have enough money to launch them when the time comes? Will we? Will we? Are you ready to make a sacrifice? Are you? Do you have a plan to give? Do you have a plan? Beloved, may the, may the Spirit of the God, Spirit of the living God, work inside our hearts with regard to this issue of generosity. One old preacher said it takes two conversions. One converts your soul, the other converts your checkbook. It's really where we're living. It's right down to where we're at. May God give you clarity and peace as you contemplate His Word in these matters. Let's pray. Our Father, you could hear a pin drop 
as we consider the significance of these questions. Well, Lord God, this really burrows down to the here and now, the day to day. Now, Father, we have made many, many mistakes, every single one of us. We have made bad financial decisions. Sometimes through ignorance and other times our Father truthfully motivated through greed. Our Father, our faith is shaky in this area sometimes. We, we find the allure of this world to be really strong. It's really, really hard to remember what the Scripture says, that we are strangers, that we are aliens, that our citizenship is not here, that this is not what life is all about, but that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and that we have been given a divine mandate to preach the gospel from one end of this globe to another. Our Father, we live in a culture that is absolutely awash in materialism and greed. And Lord, like fish in the sea, swallow seawater and don't even know it, we also swallow the seawater of this culture far too often and we don't know it either. We are enticed by advertisements that tell us we must have the latest, the greatest, the new and improved, whatever it is. That happiness is somehow found in the contents of a bottle or the driver's seat of a new automobile or a bigger home or more clothes or a 401k that will allow us to live insulated from faith without any requirement to depend on you because we're rich and nothing can touch us. Oh, Lord, deliver us from such foolishness. Our Father, do a work of grace in our lives. Transform your people. Enable us, oh, Lord, to be generous. We pray in the name of the one who was supremely generous with us, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.